Welcome and good morning. How are y'all doing? Good. That's what I'm talking about. The nine o'clock crowd. That's the real crowd. Everybody at the actual service is like, good, but you guys did great. Let me pray for us and then we will jump into theological equipping class. Dear God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time to get to study not only your word in a sense, but also to get to study your word through the great thinking of the men and women that have come before us. We thank you that you love your church and that the gates of Hades have never and will never prevail against it, that there's always been a remnant, those who have not bowed the knee to Baal, that you have preserved for yourself, your elect. And so we thank you for this time. We ask that you would bless it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, today uh, we are continuing to study church history, surprise, surprise, but the topic is a little different than originally planned, and that's because our very own Jared Lawson got sick, okay? So he's got a little tummy bug, you know, a little tummy ache, and so he can't be here this morning. You know, he preached, he gave you everything that he had, and that just weakened his immune system so much that he just collapsed uh, during the week. And so he was going to teach on a guy named Anselm, which we'll do in a couple of weeks. Today, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. We're still in the Middle Ages to a guy named Thomas Aquinas. So as we're studying church history, most lessons are about a certain time period or a certain event in church history, whether that's the Reformation or the medieval church or whatever it might be. But in a few places, we slow down to really focus on one key thinker, a, a key figure or a major player that has greatly influenced Christianity. And so we've done that, for example, with Athanasius. We did that with Augustine. We're going to do that with a bunch of other guys, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, some of these other guys. But today, we're going to talk about a guy named Thomas Aquinas. I don't know if you've ever heard that name, but we're going to talk about uh, Thomas today. Uh, this lesson will be a little bit technical, okay? Thomas is a very profound thinker. He's a very precise thinker. So this, th there'll be some technical elements in here. Don't let that scare you. Just listen to the lecture on your drive to work when you're angry in traffic. Don't be angry. Just be Thomistic, okay? So you can listen to that and you can be edified. Uh, other lessons won't be that technical. As we get closer and closer to today, the lessons, I think, become more and more fun because we're more familiar with them. The early church, something obscure is going on. They're figuring out the Trinity. The medieval church feels like all that Catholic-y stuff. And then we get to the reference and then all you guys geek out because Protestantism, amen. And so everybody uh, will enjoy that. So we'll be getting to that in a few weeks, but today we need to talk about Thomas Aquinas. So let's talk about this guy. <clears throat> let's go over an introduction and then we will get into some of his thinking. Who is Thomas Aquinas? He was the most influential theologian of the Middle Ages and is probably the most influ influential theologian after Augustine, Augustine's always number one, in the Roman Catholic Church today. Now, when I say he's very popular and famous in the Middle Ages, I don't actually mean during his day. His works, a lot of them were originally uh, looked upon with suspicion by the church, but uh, eventually they became official doctrine of the church and a, a way of interpreting scripture, and so his legacy really outlived him. Let's talk a little bit about his life. There's a picture of him. I don't know if he looked anything like that. All the paintings in the Middle Ages all look super weird. Everyone looks sickly and frail and pasty. We don't know what he looked like, but we know he's a big guy, and we'll see why in just a second. First of all, he was born to a noble Italian family near Naples in a place that is called Aquino, hence the name Aquinas. Aquinas is not his last name. You wouldn't go up to him and call him like Dr. Aquinas, okay? Aquinas is not his last name. It's the town that he's from. He's actually just called Thomas. So if you were to study, for example, theology at Notre Dame, they just call him St. Thomas. St. Thomas is his official title. Uh, Aquinas is the location of where he was born. And he was born in either, and this is weird, 1224 or 1225, we don't actually know. Scholars are deba debate this. They don't know the exact year that Aquinas was born. So some sort of uh, uh, mysterious Melchizedek figure that just shows up, okay? Uh, he was quiet and a very large man. 
As a child, due to his lumbering size and shy personality, he was given the nickname Dumb Ox by the other students in his school. Hmm, it's kind of sad, right? So he's quiet and he's lumbering, and so they call him the Dumb Ox. Now, keep that in mind because he's going to go on to be very not dumb, okay? So keep that in mind, the Dumb Ox. He had a lifelong fear of storms. Why? When he was a toddler, his sister had died from a lightning strike while they were sleeping in the same room. He carried a relic of St. Agnes, who, by the way, is the patron saint of young girls and survivors. That's the one you want when your, do- you know, your sister was killed uh, as a child to protect him from storms. Storms play a big part, for whatever reason, in church history. Martin Luther will get scared into the monastery uh, because of storms. So uh, we in Texas, though, I mean, that, so whatever storms you have in Europe is nothing compared to this, okay? Everyone else enjoys the spring. We in Texas survive it. Okay. He was sent to study with religious clerics at Monte Cassino at the age of five. He studied at Naples at the age of only 14, and then at the University of Paris. Now, when you think of great universities, when you think of Oxford and Cambridge and all these kind of things like that, the University of Paris in the Middle Ages is hands down the best theology school in the world. It's certainly not that anymore, but at that time it is the best theology school in the world. So he's studying theology at the best possible university, and he's studying under the, one of the best theologians, a guy named Albert the Great, or in Latin, Albertus Magnus, okay? However, Instead of joining a religious order that could lead to more wealth for his family, he decided to become a Dominican monk, which means he also had to vow to become poor. So he wanted, there were certain places where you could be in the church, you could be a cleric, and you could make a bunch of money. And that's what his family was kind of hoping for him. But instead, he decides to become a Dominican. So now he has to be poor. And so his family knows this is not going to benefit us at all. And so here's what they do, okay? They lock him up in a castle for a year, so he can't go become a Dominican, okay? His brothers put a prostitute, put a naked woman even in his room to try to tempt him. And as legend has it, instead of being with the prostitute, he takes a fire iron from the fire and chases her out the door, right? As, as any good, you know, potential uh, seminary student or whatever would do. Supposedly that night, two angels appeared to him to encourage him to remain celibate. Okay? So you see, with a lot of these major figures in the Middle Ages, there's kind of a little bit of legend that gets mixed in with the reality. This might be a true story, but it might not be. We don't really know, but that is a uh, popular story when it comes to uh, St. Thomas. Again, when we call somebody St. Thomas or St. Augustine, we're not saying that we as Protestants actually think that they're canonized as saints, right? As, as Protestants, we're all saints. We just use that term because it's an official title, and it helps add clarity. If I quote from St. Anthony, and I just say, Tony... You have no idea who that is, okay? So it lets you know it's an official, uh, you know, an official uh, somebody who's a somebody. He had, amen to this, terrible handwriting. It is called the litera inintelligibilis, the unintelligible letters, okay? So he had terrible handwriting. So, uh, you know, some, a lot of great men have terrible handwriting. So just keep that in mind as I write up here in just a second some of his thoughts. In 1273, a few months before his death, he had a mystical experience while at Mass in which he somehow encountered God. It's unclear exactly what that means. He believed that experience to be so profound that all his intellectual work seemed vain in comparison to that. He wrote, and uh, on your notes, I think it says not there. That's a typo. Mine says no. Mine's correct. I can write no more. 
I have seen things that make all my writings like straw. So Aquinas is this great thinker. He's writing this massive work, the Summa Theologia, uh, and he's writing this, and then he has this experience one day at Mass where he somehow encounters God, and he thinks that everything he has written compared to that experience is like straw, and so he doesn't write anymore. Okay, so he actually never got to finish some of these major projects that he was working on. He died in 1274 at the age of just 49. He was canonized as a saint by the Catholic Church in 1323 and declared an official doctor of the church. Now, there's a bunch of saints in Roman Catholicism. There's only very few doctors. A doctor of the church is an official Catholic teacher, and that happened with him in 1567. Okay, so that's a brief life, a brief sketch of, uh, of St. Thomas. Let's talk a little bit about his legacy, and then we'll get into the theology, and that's when we will hope to blow your mind, okay? Legacy. How great is this guy? Thomas Aquinas studied under Albert the Great in addition to attending the best university in the world at that time, the University of Paris. His Summa Theologia, this is his biggest work, okay, uh, is still one of the most influential theological textbooks ever. It is five volumes divided into three parts. The work consists of 38 tracts, 631 questions, about 3,000 articles, and 10,000 objections and their answers. We're going to end this lesson by looking at a section from his uh, Summa Theologia uh, here at the end. He was an enormously competent biblical scholar and commentator. We have a tendency to think that Catholics are just busy doing Catholic stuff. They're just up there studying philosophy and debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pen or something like this. That is not true, okay? These guys are serious about the Bible, and guys like Aquinas write these massive commentaries on different books of the Bible. He wrote commentaries on Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Psalms, Job, Matthew, John, the epistles of Paul, and Hebrews. In addition, he wrote commentaries on Boethius, Pseudo-Dionysius, also called Pseudo-Dennis, and Lombard's four books of sentences. He wrote commentaries on Aristotle's works, including On the Soul, Physics, Politics, Nicomachean Ethics, De Interpretatione, Metaphysics, Posterior Analytics, and others. In addition to that, he wrote a massive work called Summa Contra Gentiles, which is like an apologetic handbook for missions work among non-Christians. Now, how much writing is that? He wrote over 8 million words, to put that into uh, something for you. That's the equivalent length of about 144 doctoral dissertations. Okay, so he is a massive writer. He is a brilliant scholar. He was so smart that he could dictate three or four books to his scribes at the same time. So a lot of writing done in the Middle Ages, you would have a scribe, and you would be talking and dictating to them what you would like them to write down. Okay? What Aquinas would do is he would have three or four of them be dictating one book, stop, turn and dictate another part of the other book, stop, dictate another part of the other book, and he might be working on a Bible commentary and a commentary on Aristotle's work and then one of his own works all at the same time. So his ability to think is, uh, how shall we say, better than you and me, okay? Supposedly, Albertus Magnus, Albert the Great, his great teacher at the University of Paris, once said of Thomas, now remember how he was called the dumb ox, okay? You call him the dumb ox, but in his teaching, he will one day produce such a bellowing that it will be heard throughout the world. Fittingly, he is the patron saint of education in the Roman Catholic Church, and he is known as the Doctor Angelicus, the angelic doctor, due to his loftiness of thoughts and the purity of his life. He also wrote a bunch about angels, but that's not the main reason that he's called the angelic doctor. It's mainly because of uh, his greatness. Okay, that's Thomas. There he is again. Again, we don't know what he looks like. That doesn't look like the guy on the first page. But uh, there you go. Again, we just do the best we can before photographs. There is, uh, there's Thomas Aquinas right there. Uh, now, by the way, see that little haircut? See that little, you ever see that? Okay, now, not only is that just very popular with the ladies, let me tell you why monks do that. 
okay? Monks, you'll often see that where they have hair trimmed. That's called a tonsure. Hair trimmed on the side and on the top. There's two reasons they do that. One is to renounce the pomp of the world. To take on the reproach of Christ sometimes means having a real terrible half bowl haircut, okay? The other reason that they do that, some of that, is to imitate the crown of thorns. You notice that the hair makes a crown. That's why part, sometimes monks will shave the top and the sides, is they're in a sense, it, it's in honor of Christ, right? It is this crown of thorns. It's a remembrance that they are giving up their life as Christ gave up his. Now, let's talk a little bit about the theology of Aquinas, and here's where it's going to get a little bit deep, and we're going to have to put on our thinking caps, but don't be discouraged, okay? The easiest way to understand the theology of St. Thomas is by understanding that he is merging Christian theology with the philosophy of Aristotle, okay? Theologians have always ridden on the backs of philosophers. One of the things that makes certain theologians great is that they take the best learning of the secular world and they get rid of all the secular elements and then they, they mix that with the Bible and so then you have God's word and you also have the best of human learning coming together. This is one of the reasons why Augustine is so such a good theologian. He takes the philosophy of uh, uh, Plotinus, actually not Plato, but Plotinus, what's called Neoplatonism, and he combines it with the Bible. Okay? The reason that's important is because these guys aren't just trying to give some random comments about God or salvation. They're trying to give you an entire worldview that's been influenced by Christianity. So the saying is that Augustine baptizes Plato and Aquinas baptizes Aristotle. What Aquinas is going to do is he's going to take the philosophy of Aristotle and he's going to use that to help inform his theology so that he's able to give explanations and definitions and this kind of stuff that's consistent in almost every area of life. He doesn't just talk about things like the Trinity. He also talks about things like, can you use self-defense to protect your life and to what degree? He'll go into a bunch of other topics because he's trying to give you, he's doing big ticket theology. He's trying to answer all the questions. And so he does that by combining the Bible with Aristotle, okay? Now, what he's gonna do though is he's gonna leave the parts of Aristotle out that are unhelpful, but he's gonna keep the other parts. For example, Aristotle thought that the universe was eternal, okay? Nothing comes from nothing, and so it can't be the case that the universe just started, and so he thought the universe was eternal. Aquinas can't hold that. Aquinas is a Christian. So he has to take that part of Aristotle, and he has to twist it. He has to say, he has to say that the philosopher, which is what he calls Aristotle, just capital P, the philosopher, gets that wrong, but the other things he gets right. Now, let me tell you where this is. If that sounds confusing, let me give you a very practical example of this. What do Roman Catholics today believe happens when they take communion? Who knows? Transubstantiation, you even used the big term. I thought one you were gonna say where you eat the Lord. No, yes, transubstantiation, okay? Transubstantiation, let's explain what that is. When you partake of communion to a Roman Catholic, they don't just think that you are mysteriously somehow partaking in Christ, which is what I would hold. I think it's more than just a symbol. They hold that you are materially eating the skin of Jesus and materially drinking his, you know, A-positive blood or whatever blood he had. I gave him an A+. You know, he did a good job. Uh, so whatever it is, that's what they think, that you're materially eating Jesus. Now, you say to them, well, wait a second. Why don't we just take that wafer, take a microscope, zoom in on it, and see how it looks like bread and not human skin cells? Or why don't we realize that when we take a bunch of Jesus' blood, it gets us drunk? Why, why couldn't we just do that? And the Catholics will say, no, 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 you don't understand what we're saying. We're not saying that the appearance of the elements have changed, okay? We're not saying these accidental properties, the appear it's still gonna look like bread, that's the appearance. It's still gonna taste like wine, that's the appearance. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying the substance is what changes. That's why it's called trans, which means change. Substantiation, substance, the substance, the underlying thing, what is a substance? A substance is something that stands under 
all the other properties that a thing has. And so what they're saying is the substance is what changes. In reality, it becomes the body and blood of Jesus materially, but the accidents that appear to you, the way that it looks to your eyes and tastes to your tongue, that's not what changes, okay? So you can't just zoom in on a, you know, a piece of the wafer and see that it doesn't look like skin. That's not the issue. That's still just the appearance. Now, where does he get that idea? He gets it from Aristotle. Now, he's, Aristotle would not have said that you get to separate the appearance from the substance, but I say all that to simply say what Aquinas is doing is he's trying to do this. He's trying to say the church teaches transubstantiation. How can we bolster that philosophically? And so he uses people like Aristotle to help give him some intellectual firepower behind that view, okay? If that was difficult, it gets worse, okay? Let's go through a few things. First of all, we can know, so so, so here's some great and powerful theological points from Aquinas. Uh, when I say great, I just mean uh, very well thought through, not necessarily all correct. Maybe, uh, let me look real quick. Just want to double check. No, I actually agree with all these. These are all great points, okay? Just wanted to make sure before I said that. I agree with all nine of these points. Uh, these would be the views that I, uh, that I would hold as well. Okay, so first, we can know certain truths about God from nature. This is what is known as natural theology. Aquinas believed that the most important truths must be revealed to us, the Trinity, the Incarnation, etc., but that lost people could reason to God's existence through logical proofs. So there are some people in church history that think philosophy's bad, natural theology's bad. Don't look at what's out there in the world, just look at the Bible. This would be guys like Karl Barth, this would be guys like Martin Luther, very much doesn't like natural theology. Aquinas would say, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. All truth is God's truth, So we should be looking to the way that God has made the world to learn something. Doesn't Paul do that in Romans 1? Doesn't he say that even lost people who don't have the law can look and see that that God is the creator? That they can look and see that they've broken God's laws? Even the pagan knows that committing adultery is wrong. And so Aquinas will be a big proponent of what is called natural theology, that you can know not the most important things about God. Those have to be revealed to you in the Bible. But that you can know some things about God, namely his existence, but also some other moral truths just by looking at the world around you, okay? A big contribution to theology with Aquinas is that God's essence and his existence are the same thing. He writes about this in Deante et Essentia. That's the first thing I ever read from Aquinas. Let me explain what this means. Let me pull out my phone. Tell me some basic things about my phone. It has a camera. What else? Get more basic than that. It's black. Get more basic than color. It exists. The most basic thing. Check it out. Check it out. Now let me pull out my non-existing phone and see how different it is. Super different. Okay? So when it comes to objects, what it is is different than the fact that it is. Okay? So its essence, what it is, a phone, is different than the fact that it exists. Okay? With God, Aquinas will say, those are the same things. For example, uh, a unicorn does not exist, unless you're some sort of unicorn conspiracy theorist. A unicorn does not exist. We know what it is. It's this horse with a horn. We know the, the thatness of it. But does it actually exist? It does not. You can conceive of it as a thing that could exist, but just happens not to. You with me so far? That's not the case with God. God's essence, what God is, is existence. After all, he says, I am. In the New Testament, it says, in him we live and move and have our what? Our being. I, 
Okay, let, let me say it another way. <clears throat> is there anything at all that makes me at least a little bit like God? What do you think? Yes or no? I have the Holy Spirit, but the Holy, I'm not the Holy Spirit, so that doesn't make me like God. What else? We bear his image, but what does that mean? It doesn't mean that he looks like us, because notice both men and women look like God, and yet God doesn't look like Michael Jackson. He's not androgynous. God doesn't look like a physical being. God's not physical, okay? What else? What is it? We have reason, but is my reason the same as God's reason, or do we not mean anything the same when I, when I say that I have love and God has love, are those the same? Those aren't just on a different, farther up on the scale, they're on different scales. So what you might say is, Zach, I've got you. You exist and God exists, and the devil exists. That's something that all three of you have in common. And I would say, even on that, that's incorrect. And let me explain why. I exist contingently, meaning I didn't have to exist. God could have created a world with no Zachs, and it would have been a better world, okay? None of us had to exist. We exist contingently. Existence is not part of our nature. God lets us exist. He keeps us existing by his word of power, as the Bible will say about Christ. But he didn't have to do that. Now, here's the difference with God. God necessarily exists. There's no such thing of thinking of God as not existing. If you're doing that, you're not thinking of God. God, to, to exist and to be God are the same thing. We exist only because God gives us existence. It trickles down from him. He just has it in himself. He must exist. To say it another way, back before God created anything, to be God and to exist were the same thing. Okay? What, what he's trying to do is he's trying to give you a bigger picture of God. He's trying to say, whereas you and I are humans that happen to exist, God's essence, what God is, is capital B being, capital E existence. Let me say it another way. When we say that God is good, do we mean this? So goodness, let's just put good up here. Look at that terrible handwriting. I'm like Thomas Aquinas. Okay, do we mean that there's this standard of goodness? Can you see this? That there's this standard of goodness and that God is under that? Is that what we mean? Like God has to look at this pre-described pattern of what's good and he, as he's making the Bible, he's like, okay, so we need to not murder, nailed it. We, don't commit, okay, adultery, that'd be bad. Is that what he does? No, no, no. God doesn't stand under goodness. We know what goodness is because it conforms to God's character. You with me? Okay, the same thing is true with existence. It's not as though God just happens to exist. He's not just one of a bunch of things that exist in the world, mountains and rhinoceri and you and I. Rather, he doesn't stand under that. He is the definition of existence. He necessarily exists, and anything else that exists gets its being from him. This is the infinite gap between the creator and the creation that we often talk about. There's only two things in the entire universe. There's God, creator, and there's creation, which is everything else, okay? And God in that first category is a pure being. That's what Aquinas is going to say. Now, he gets that idea from some Muslim philosophers, and he Christianizes it to make it about God. He's not the first one to say that. Others, uh, such as Boethius and Augustine, had already said that, but there you go. Whoo! You good? You need a breather? Do some, do some calisthenics or something? Do we need to? Okay. Next. When the Bible describes God, this is really important, it does not do so univocally, but analogically, okay, meaning an analogy. Let, let me say it this way. When the Bible says that God has a mighty right arm, does God literally have an arm? No, okay? When the Bible says that God gathers us, 
Under his wings, like a hen gathers its chicks. Does God have wings? Is he like a big bird? No. When the Bible says that God changes his mind, does he literally change his mind? Where he's like, oh, I'm such a dumb creator. These stupid humans, why did they eat of that tree? I did, I did not see this coming. Gabriel or whoever, I did not see this. Is that what he does? No. When the Bible speaks about God, it does not do so with a one-to-one correlation with human language, okay? It does not use what's called univocity, this one language. When I say I'm strong and Jeff Ashley's strong, I mean the same thing by the word strong. When I say I'm strong and God is strong, I do not mean the same thing, okay? So what Aquinas is going to do, and we have a blog on this called Does the Bible Literally Describe God, if you want to know more about this. What Aquinas is trying to do is he's trying to say, okay, when we use language about God, this being that's infinite, this being that's trinity, this being that's holy other, how do we talk about that God? We can't by our words mean nothing by them, right? So if I say I have love and somebody scored love in tennis, those words love mean don't mean anything the same. But we also can't mean the exact same thing. If I say that I have love and God has love, I don't mean the same thing by those. So how do we understand God? How does the Bible talk about God? And his answer is, it talks about God through analogy. If I say that a football player is as strong as an ox, do I mean that it's, he's literally like an ox in every way? He has horns and hooves and he's not human and he eats hay or whatever oxen eat? No. What do I mean by saying a football player is as strong as an ox? He's really strong. That's all I mean. Okay? So when the Bible talks about God's mighty right hand, he doesn't have a right hand. It's saying most of us are right-handed, unless you have the deformity of being a southpaw. Most of us are right-handed like God is. And therefore, we know what it's like to be strong. Okay? He doesn't literally have a right hand. To a left-hander, you would say he has a mighty left hand. Okay? Or when the Bible says that God regrets, he doesn't literally regret. In fact, the Bible's going to say the glory of Israel does not have regret. We're supposed to just understand what that's like to understand the story. If I'm driving in my car and I'm running low on gas and I say, man, this baby sure is thirsty. Is my car literally thirsty at all? Yes or no? The answer is no. What am I saying by saying that my car is thirsty? I'm using an analogy. I know what it's like to be low on liquid and my car is low on liquid, and though they're not at all the same thing, I'm saying my car is thirsty. But you know what I mean. That's how the Bible talks about God. It's not just that the Bible uses anthropomorphisms where it talks about God in human language. It's that all of the Bible's speech about God is anthropomorphic, so anytime the Bible says something about God, you have to stop and ask, what is actually the point of what's being said? Where is the analogy meant to be drawn, okay? The analogy of having a mighty right arm is not that he has a body. The idea is that he's strong. The, the analogy of him hiding us under his wings like a chick is not that he has wings, it's that he cares for us. And so he will be very, very helpful in understanding our language of how we talk about God. Next, number four. <clears throat> God's existence can be proved through pure reason. Okay, this is a big thing for Aquinas. He outlined this in his famous five ways in his Summa Theologia. He's gonna give us five ways uh, to prove God's existence. I'm just gonna give one example here. Now, this is gonna sound very technical, so don't let it freak you out. Aquinas is actually a tremendously clear writer. He's just using language we're not used to. So let me read it and explain it as we go. To improving God's existence. The second way to prove God's existence is from the natures of the efficient cause. In the world of sense, we find there's an order of efficient causes. There is no cause known, neither is it indeed possible, in which a thing is found to be the efficient cause of itself. For so it would be prior to itself, which is impossible. 
Now, in efficient causes, it is not possible to go on to infinity because in all efficient causes, following an order, the first is a cause of the intermediate cause, and the intermediate uh, is the cause of the ultimate cause, whether the intermediate cause be several or only one. Now, to take away the cause is to take away the effect. Therefore, if there be no first cause among efficient causes, there will be no ultimate or any intermediate causes. But if, in efficient causes, it is possible to go on to infinity, there will be no first efficient cause. Neither will there be an ultimate effect, nor any intermediate effect, uh, efficient causes, all of which is plainly false. Therefore, it is necessary to admit a first efficient cause to which everyone gives the name God. Now, if that's confusing with all his cause, efficient cause, here's simply what he's saying, okay? Nothing can be the cause of itself or else it would exist prior to itself. So I didn't cause me. I'm the, the, the cause of me is my parents. The cause of them are their parents. The cause of them are their parents. I didn't cause myself or else I would have existed before I existed. Okay, so he's saying that's impossible. Additionally, the world can't just be going backwards with an infinite series of causes. Do you know why? Because we would have never gotten to today. If the universe is infinite, and the cause of me is my parents, and the cause of them is meeting at a restaurant, and the cause of, and you keep going back, cause, 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 all the way back. If that goes on to infinity, you never get to today. You can't traverse an infinite series of cause and effects. Therefore, his conclusion There must be a being who himself is not caused. There must be a being who starts all of that. There must be a being outside of space and time that doesn't run into the same problems when you have an eternal universe, and he must be the one that starts that whole chain of events that gets us to today, okay? That's what Aquinas is saying. You good so far? It's gonna get more difficult. God is pure act, Simple and impassable. Now, Aquinas here is not coming up with these. These are things that the church has always held. The reformers hold all this. The early church fathers hold this. The medieval church holds this. What do I mean by these different terms? First of all, by saying God is pure act, what I mean is there's no potentiality in God. There's potentiality in me because I change. I'm I'm not just something that possesses pure being. I possess becoming. I have potentiality. Check this out. I'm potentially about to run, and now I did it. Boom. See the change? There's no change with God. There's no potentiality with God. Whatever he is, he is all the way, all the time. So the idea here is that God is not a changing being. He's not one that moves from one thing to another. He's not in the world of becoming like us. We become different things. I was a baby and I became an adult, okay? Then I became a pastor. We're changing, we're becoming. There's none of that with God. God is unchanging. Whatever he is, he is to the highest degree all the time. God is also simple. Let me explain what I mean by simple. This one's a little trickier. When we say God is simple in theology, we don't mean that he's simple-minded or that he's easy to understand. That's not what we mean by simple. By simple, we mean not composite. We mean not made up of parts, okay? You with me so far? So I am composite. I'm made up of parts. Check it out. My hand is different than the rest of me. I'm not just a hand, or else Paul would say, where would my sense of smell be, or whatever, when he talks about the body. I'm made up of parts. No one part of me is all of Zach. You with me? No one part of me is all of Zach. That's not the case with God. God is not composed of parts. All of God is God. When the Bible says that God is light, which it says, does it not? When the Bible says that God is love, which it says, does it not? When the Bible says that God is truth, that doesn't mean that he's like 33% love and 33% light and 33% truth, 0.333 repeating. That's not the point. It's trying to say that that, that God is just God And we experience that godness in different ways. So when, you've heard the saying that the same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. You ever heard that? 
The idea is that the sun, S-U-N, it's just being the sun. It's just being hot. And as it shines down, when it shines on ice, it melts. When it shines on clay, the clay hardens. That's how God is with humanity. God is just God, but when you're saved, you feel that presence of God as grace. And when you're lost, you feel that presence of God as wrath. It's not because God is 50% grace and 50% wrath. God is just God. It's you who experiences God differently based on your relationship to him. It's not because there's any change in God, okay? So if we have a prism, I'm gonna draw a prism. Here we go. This is gonna be real good. Okay, I'm already messed up. All right, let's just, just put it here. These are triangles. And we just kind of, oh yeah. Oh yeah, have your mind blown. What? It's pretty good. Okay, so when you shine white light, when you shine white light into the prism, it goes in like this. I don't know if it comes from this angle. I don't know anything about optics, but just follow me. The light shines in, patow! And then from the prism, oh, you get all these different colors. Oh, you get all these all these colors that have been hijacked to push a political agenda. You get all these colors, okay? Now, when we talk about God, okay, and we list God's different attributes, God is strong, God is wise, God is you know, slow to anger, whatever it is, it's not that those things are actually different things to God. God is like the white light, God is just God. What the Bible does is it acts like this prism so that we, as finite human beings who are stupid, can understand a being who's completely simple. So mentally and intellectually, God's wrath is different than his love, but they're not actually different in God. They're just conceptually different to us, so we can understand we don't wanna be under his wrath, we want to be under his love. Does that make sense? Okay. Almost, yes, good. If it fully makes sense, you're probably not thinking of it correctly. And so there, there's nothing else like that other than God. God Again, if you cut off my finger, that's not all of Zach. Any part of God is fully God because he doesn't have any parts. He's just Godness, okay? You with me? That's the idea. Now, keep that in mind. What's another way to say it? Okay, let's do a little more philosophy. A substance is what a thing is, okay? And that substance has attributes or properties. What does that mean? Okay, let's take a dog. What's its name? Pick one. Pebbles? Pickles, okay. Pickles the dog, okay? You have Pickles the dog. What is he? A dog, I already told you, you nailed it, okay? Now, that's his substance, dogginess, okay? Now, he has additional properties. For example, brownness. Or he might have floppy ears. Uh, Or he might be big or small. But there's a reason why we say the dog is brown And we don't say, brownness has a dog instantiated under it. I mean, I say that, but you guys don't say that, okay? Why? Because its substance is a dog. uh, The other properties can change, and it'd still be a dog. It could be a different color, it'd still be a dog. You can shave it, it'd still be a dog. You can, uh, it can lose an arm and run around on one of those weird, weird scooter things, it's still a dog, okay? When it comes to God, there is no difference between substance and properties. They're all the same thing. Okay? This is really important to realize. There's been a weird move in evangelicalism recently to try to say that some of the members of the Trinity have certain attributes that other members don't have. When you do that, you are being a tritheist and you are being an Arian, period. That's not what makes the members of the Trinity different because God is simple. They can't have any different attributes. They can't have any different substances because those are the same thing for God. What makes the members of the Trinity different has to be something related to their person, 
not the substance or the properties or the accidents. God has no accidents, okay? So, okay, another mind reset. We'll keep this picture up, this sweet uh, Pink Floyd album cover or whatever it is. Uh, Let's go over one more thing that's really important. So for Aquinas, as for many people for him and the reformers and everybody, again, this is a universally held thing about God. God is impassable. Again, we have another blog on this called Does God Have Feelings? God does not change at all, okay? So you need to understand that God does not have feelings or emotions. Now, as soon as I say that, that freaks some of you out. You're like, then how can he love me? Here's the answer. Because his love for you is not human love. His love for you is different than that. When we love people, it's an emotion, right? We have a body, so we go on a date and we get butterflies in our stomach. God has no stomach. And we change. We go from not loving somebody to loving somebody. Or we're having a great day and then somebody makes us mad and we get angry. None of that is literally true with God because God is unchanging. You don't give God good and bad days because he's impassable. He affects you. You don't affect him. He's doing fine all the time, okay? So does God really love you? Yes. Does God really hate sin? Yes. But by those terms, don't think of them as emotions. Don't think of them the way that you think of love and hate. God is not a man. God is a being that is different than that. Let me give you another example. Is the sun hot, S-U-N? Yes. Yes. You did it, okay? Say it proudly. The sun is hot. Declare, scream it from the mountaintops. The sun is hot, okay? Does the sun feel its own heat? It does not. We feel its heat because we have bodies and we're changeable and we're passable. The sun doesn't feel anything, okay? The sun just bees the sun, to use an excellent English sentence, okay? It's the same way with God. God doesn't feel love. God is love. God doesn't feel wrath. God is wrath. It's different. Now, for a lot of people, that freaks them out because they want an emotional teenager God, They want a God that they give good and bad days to that is really overly invested, okay? The reason this is good news for you, and hear this pastorally and then I'll move on, is because if God is impassable and you don't change him, it means when he decides to set his love on you, you can't screw it up. That never changes. I used to think this was a very scary doctrine until I realized, wait a second, that means God can be happy with me always because I don't change him. That's huge. The way you will partially get over some of your bad relationship, if you feel like it is with God, is to realize he needs nothing from you. He, like the sun, just shines down his heat on you. You feel it as love. God, though, is impassable. He's unchanging. He's perfect, okay? You don't give him good and bad days. He's not like uh, 30% love today and then 50% wrath tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. Next, number six. Philosophy is good and should be used by Christians. In fact, you necessarily have to use philosophy if you're a Christian because all of our terms that we get for the Trinity are philosophical terms. Whereas some theologians, Bonaventure and Augustine, thought that studying philosophy in and of itself was vain curiosity. So Augustine would say, you can study philosophy if you're trying to be real religious and you're wanting to use it for God, but just studying philosophy, that's vain curiosity. Aquinas disagrees. Aquinas says that part of humans, the way that humans are constituted is to know God has wired us with rationality so that we might want to know the world around us. So he says the study of philosophy is legitimate and praiseworthy in itself. Additionally, listen to this great quote. If, however, in the writings of the philosophers, many of whom are pagans, not Christian, one finds anything contrary to faith, it is not philosophy, but rather an abuse of philosophy stemming from a defect of reason. 
So what he's saying is the problem is not philosophy, it's bad philosophy. It's philosophy not done well. When the Bible warns us against worldly philosophy, it's not saying don't read Plato and don't be consistent with your statements. What it's saying is when philosophy is done wrongly, which leads you away from Christ, stay away from that. But anything that the philosophers say that's true, you get to redeem that and use it for Christ because all truth is God's truth. You don't want to say that the truths just in the Bible belong to God. Is God not the creator of the universe? Do not all truths therefore belong to him? And so Aquinas, I'll give you one more quote, which is great. Those who use philosophical text and sacred teaching by subjecting them to faith do not mix water with wine, but turn water into wine, okay? Number seven, the purpose of all of humanity is to find its happiness in God through the beatific vision. Man cannot literally see God. God is invisible, and we can only see what's material and created, and God is not material or created. But we can somehow experience God's essence in eternity, Okay? The goal of the Christian life is to be in the presence of God. That is what you were created for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Confession would say. Okay? Aquinas would say the goal of life is to be in the presence of God. It is to behold, to whatever degree you're able, and experience the presence of God, which you do in eternity, but you also get a glimpse of now when you're praying, when you're studying the Bible, when you're evangelizing. You get this tiny glimpse of infinity, and as you reach for it, it dissipates in your hand, but you've gotten this tiny glimpse of the beatific vision. Let's talk about nerd stuff. Let's talk about school. Some of you love school. Some of you hate school. Here's some school for you. He was a major contributor to what is called scholasticism. Scholasticism is the academic systematizing done in the Middle Ages. What is scholasticism? The whole Middle Ages is an attempt to reconcile faith and reason. Okay? It's an attempt to build these cathedrals of the mind, if you want to say it that way, and have a worldview where faith and reason go together to systematize everything, to catalog everything. That is the kind of education that is going on in the Middle Ages. And not only did Aquinas have a brilliant education, but he also is a big contributor to education, and he's the patron saint of education. So let me explain how education was done in the Middle Ages. How is it done today? You log in online, and you have to wear a mask in front of your computer screen at home, and you do that, and you learn some things, and then you play Xbox, and then you go get a degree that you don't have an education, and you start your business. That's American education, okay? It is not great. The way that we do education worldwide today is nowhere near as good as we used to do it. No matter how good the university is that you think that it is, you're still not doing it in Latin usually today, so therefore you're not as good. We think that we're smarter today. We're super stupid today. We are not smarter. We have more technology, but we're not smarter. Kids 500 years ago are debating what does it mean to be, and our kids play Xbox. It's different, okay? It's different. The way education was done in the Middle Ages is much better. First of all, universities were primarily run by clergy, and you were under the law of the university at which you were studying. So you could commit some crimes, and you'd be judged by the university instead of by the state, which is interesting. You often received a classical education before moving on to advanced subjects. So you would do the trivium first, grammar, logic, rhetoric. Grammar means you collect facts. Logic means you put the facts together. Rhetoric means you persuade other people of the facts. Another reason our education system today is terrible is because it stays at the grammar level. What do kids learn today? They just memorize facts. Memorize historical dates, memorize the periodic table of elements. Uh, why? Because that's all you need for the STEM stuff, right? Science, technology, engineering, and uh, mechanics. You just need stuff that works. And so this is why there are, there are very, very smart people, obviously, in China and India, etc. They all stay at the grammar level, which is why you don't have much philosophy or theology or politics coming out of places that just push kids to memorize numbers. Okay? Same thing's true in the United States. Most of our education stays at the grammar level, collect facts, regurgitate them on a test. We don't teach people how to think, how to put them together, how to persuade others, which is why there's so much inconsistency. 
why is this riot okay but not this riot? Shouldn't all riots be bad? Whatever it is. We, we don't have no, no consistency because we haven't taught our kids how to think. But in the Middle Ages, you would do the trivium and then the quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. After receiving an education in the liberal arts, you could progress to one of three higher faculties, okay? Uh, these would be theology, which we have today, whether you go to a seminary or divinity school at a university, medicine, when someone goes to medical school, or law, when somebody goes to law school. There was no chance in the Middle Ages to specialize in a practical matter. The point of education was to learn to think. You didn't get a degree in anything practical like that. You, you wouldn't get a degree in engineering. You wouldn't get a degree in business. You wouldn't get a degree. That, that's, they would say you don't need a degree to do that. We all know guys with high school dropouts that are millionaires because they're just really brilliant when it comes to business. What you're trying to do here is to study things that others have to teach you, that you can't just learn on your own, okay? How long did it take? It took three to four years to get your bachelor's degree. You would then study the Bible for two more years. You then had to study and lecture on Peter Lombard's four books of sentences for two more years after that. Then after another five to seven or more years, you could become a master or a doctor. And you did this all in Latin. It usually took 14 years of full-time study as a single person living on campus to become a professor. And the way that you did the education was better. They primarily used two things, what's called the Lectio, which are commentaries on ancient sources. So as you're reading Augustine or you're reading whoever, you're reading all these commentaries that people have written on them. And the Disputatio, method of teaching. Again, how do we do education today? A professor gets up and they lecture, you take notes, you take a test. Not a great way to learn. Here's how they would do it. If I'm the professor, we would have debates every class period. And I would say something like, Michael, give me five reasons why God does not exist. And you would give me, there's evil in the world and this seems contradictory and if God's infinite, how can we know him? And you give some things. And I'd say, excellent. Obviously, God does exist because Augustine says this or because Boethius says this. And then I'd point, I'd say, wait, give me five reasons why God does exist and refute his reasons. And then you would get up, all this is in Latin, and you would refute him and say, obviously God exists because the reason's evil in the world is because we sin against God, not because he's evil. And you would give all the different reasons. And you would do that all day, every day. The education, way better, okay? Way better. Uh, yes, less kids in a classroom as well. Not a lecture hall of, you know, 500 students, but it would be smaller. And you would living on campus, so you'd have a chance to talk to professors. Everyone's single. A lot of people are training our clergy, so they're not even allowed to be married. So all you do is debate all day. And so these guys become super smart. Oxford and Cambridge do something similar to this today. If you're a student at Oxford, you don't take classes and you don't get credits, okay? What you do is you meet one-on-one -on -one with the professor for every subject, and you do that for four years, that you write a paper, you sit with the professor, you know, he's got his nice little tweed jacket with the, you know, the leather elbow pads. You sit in his office and he says, this paper's trash, go read, you know, two treatises of government by John Locke and then come write another paper and come back. And you do that for four years. And at the end of that, you either get a degree from Oxford or you get nothing and you never get to come back. No credits, no transfer, nothing. And they post your grades on High Street in Oxford for the whole town to see today, okay? It's awesome. It's awesome. So keep that in mind next time you sign up for that University of Phoenix class. Okay. <laughs> no offense if that's you. I'm just trying to keep you awake. This gets a little, this gets a little heady. I'm just trying to keep you awake. Okay. Online education has gotten better. Uh, COVID made that happen. Okay. So the University of Paris Here's a picture of that. If you want to know what that looks like, there's a picture from the University of Paris. Again, the greatest school in the Middle Ages when it comes to theology. Number nine, he has a focus on the importance of the afterlife as more important than this life. Listen to this great quote on suffering by Aquinas. Now, if sometimes, as sometimes happens, that God listens not to a person's pleas, but rather to his advantage. 
A doctor does not listen to the pleas of the sick person who requests that the bitter medicine be taken away. Instead, he listens to the patient's advantage because by doing so, he produces health which the sick person wants most of all. In the same way, God does not remove tribulations from the person stuck in them, even though he prays earnestly for God to do so because God knows these tribulations help him forward to final salvation. And so, although God does truly listen to him, the person praying, the person stuck in afflictions believes that God hasn't listened to him. That's a great thing when you're going through suffering. God, why are you not listening to me? He's saying, I am listening to you because what I'm hearing your heart say is that you want what's best for you, not just for the pain to go away now. Okay, excellent. Next, so there's, there's nine helpful things we get from Aquinas. We get some unhelpful things too. We'll talk about that during the Reformation. Uh, but let me give you some criticisms. There's a bunch of criticisms of St. Thomas. I just wanna give you a few interesting ones. St. Thomas is critiqued for several things today. First, Protestants hate his view of justification as it's a progressive cooperation of man and God. We'll see this at the Reformation. We'll talk more about that. We're not gonna do Q&A today. Jared got sick, so we're not prepared. So I'm just gonna talk for 10 more minutes. Second, as a philosopher, he doesn't really create a lot of brand new thoughts. He just combines Christianity and Aristotelianism. So he's a good philosopher, but if you really want your name to be up there on the greats, you have to contribute more new ideas. And that's not his goal, though. He's a theologian first. He wants to use philosophy to serve uh, theology. Third, his views of slavery, which he waffles on, sex, even in marriage, and women are downright medieval. Let me give you some quotes. As regards the individual nature, woman is defective and misbegotten. For the active force in the male seed tends to the production of a perfect likeness in the masculine sex, while the production of woman comes from a defect in the active force or from some material indisposition or even from some external influence. Okay, so he's saying the baby wants to turn into a man. When that process gets short-circuited, you get a woman. That is verbatim almost from Aristotle. That's the view Aristotle held. Obviously, that's not a Christian view. Uh, God has made both men and women in the image of God, but again, Give him a break, you know? He's living in the Middle Ages. People are dying from blisters and stuff. Aquinas also said that woman was not created to be a helpmate. You often hear people call a woman a helpmate or a helpmeet for a person. He says that doesn't make any sense because, quote, a man can get more effective help from another man. <clears throat> people who are married are laughing a lot. Why is the woman there? To assist in procreation. And that woman is inferior and subject to man because man possesses more discernment of reason. He further held that a male baby got its soul 40 days after procreation, but a female baby didn't get her soul until 80 days after procreation, though he held that aborting a baby any time after conception was sin. So let, let me just explain this without, I know there's some kids in here, so I have to be careful with my, my words. Um, we know today that conception happens when sperm meets egg. They did not know that in the Middle Ages. What do you think they thought happened? They thought that the full human was contained in the man's seed. Okay? This is why contraception was seen as murder, because if the full human is contained in the man's seed, that's their view of this. Now you say, well, wait a second, Zach, if the full human is in the man's seed and the woman's just kind of there as this receptacle, why does sometimes the baby look like the mom? Well, if you've ever put a popsicle in a freezer and you leave it there too long and it kind of tastes like freezer, that's why, okay? The mom is this oven, that's her job. And sometimes when you're in the oven, you come out warm, looking like mom. Okay, that was their view. That was their view. Okay. I don't want to go too far with that, but I have other funnier things to say, but I won't, because I want to keep my job. Okay. <laughs> Let's end by looking at Aquinas' Summa Theologia. If you want to really understand what it's like to read Aquinas, this next part is going to be tricky, but we're going to work through it. We're going to spend the last 10 minutes working through it, because I think it's helpful. There's a picture of uh, one of the pages from uh, the Summa. 
Now, let me explain how he does this, and then we'll work through it, because the language is very technical. Again, don't, don't pay attention to all the things he's saying. Just look at the method, okay? What Aquinas will do throughout this work, volume after volume after volume, is he'll say this. There are some who say God doesn't exist, and he'll give reasons why God doesn't exist. And then he'll say, but I say he does. And then he'll give reasons for why God does exist. And then he'll come back on the back end and he'll explain why each of those original propositions of why God doesn't exist are wrong. It is a very thorough way of doing theology. Some say this false thing and here's the reasons they give. Here's the true thing with my reasons and here's why all their thoughts are dumb, okay? That's what he's gonna do. So we're gonna do this. I tried to take a small passage on whether or not God is simple. Just because we talked about that, that's hard to grasp. So let's see what Aquinas says on the simplicity of God, okay? Notice that he starts with an objection. It seems that God is not altogether simple. For whatever is from God must imitate him. Thus, from the first being are all beings, and from the first good is all good. But in the things which God has made, nothing is altogether simple. Therefore, neither is God altogether simple. So notice he starts with an objection, and here's what he's saying. God made everything, and everything in the world is composite. It's not simple. And obviously, somehow it reflects God, so God's probably not simple. Notice his first objection. Okay, he uses it from logic. He now gives a second objection. Further, whatever is best must be attributed to God. But with us, what is composite is better than that which is simple. Thus, chemical compounds are better than simple elements and animals than the parts that compose them. Therefore, it cannot be said that God is altogether simple. So he gives a second objection. To us, things that are more complex are better, right? A computer, a rocket ship, your iPhone. Because there's complexity, we think that's what's best. So maybe that's the same way with God. Those are his objections, okay? That's where he starts. He starts with the bad view. He now gives a contrary view. He says, on the contrary, Augustine says, God is truly and absolutely simple. So notice what he's doing. After the objections, he's giving, he's quoting a major thinker, a major player. Sometimes he'll quote from scripture, sometimes he'll quote from ever. Here he's quoting from Augustine as an authoritative source. So you understand what he's doing. Here are the things the bad people say. Augustine doesn't like them. And obviously you never want to be on the side that Augustine's not on because he's, he's the man. Everybody's got their Augustine jerseys, you know, on the back. That's what everybody loves. So now he's going to give his view. Notice, I answer that. That's how he always does it. I answer that. The absolute simplicity of God may be shown in many ways. So that's his statement. Now he's going to prove it. Here's where it gets a little technical. First, from the previous articles of this question, for there is neither composition of quantitative parts in God since he is not a body, nor composition of matter and form nor does his nature differ, differ from his, uh, what is it, suppositum, which means like uh, attributes. He's saying his nature doesn't differ from his attributes. Nor his essence from his existence. Neither is there in him composition of genus and difference, nor of subject and accident. Therefore, it is clear that God is no wise composite, but altogether simple. He's saying God doesn't fit into genus and species. He doesn't fit into substance and accidents. Whatever God is, it's God. All of God is God, okay? Secondly, because every composite is posterior, that means after, to its component parts and is dependent upon them, but God is the first being, as shown above. You can't exist very well as a human without a heart. You can't exist very well as a human without your lungs. You need these parts that you rely on to exist. That does, that's not the same way with God. God just exists. He doesn't need those parts. Thirdly, because every composite has a cause for things in themselves, different cannot unite unless something causes them to unite. But God is uncaused, as shown above, since he is the first efficient cause. Meaning, you can't just have brownness and floppy ears and heaviness to have a dog. There has to be something that unites them. It can't just be parts. Fourthly, because in every composite there must be potentiality and actuality, but this does not apply to God. For either one of the parts actuates another, or at least of the parts are potential to 
the whole. Okay? Fifthly, now this one's going to sound confusing, so just ignore what I'm about to say. I just want you to see the logical rigor. I think this next part's a great point, but if it's confusing, ignore it. We're going to have service soon. It's going to be a lot of fun. You'll go eat lunch after this. You won't remember Aquinas, but listen to this. Fifthly, because nothing composite can be predicated of any single one of its parts. And this is evident in a whole made up of dissimilar parts, for no part of a man is a man, nor any of the parts of the foot a foot. But in wholes made up of similar parts, although something which is predicated of the whole may be predicated of a part, as a part of the air is air and a part of water is water. Nevertheless, certain things are uh, predic, predic, I can't say it, of the whole, which cannot be predicated of any of the parts. For instance, if the whole volume of water is two cubits, no part of it can be two cubits. Thus, in every composite, there is something which is not in itself. But even if this could be said of whatever has form, that it has something uh, which is not in itself, as in a white object, there is something which does not belong to the essence of white. Nevertheless, in the form itself, there is nothing besides itself. And so God is absolute form, or rather absolute being. He can be in no way composite. Hilary of Potier implies this uh, argument when he says, God, who is strength, is not made up of things that are weak, nor is he who is light composed of things that are dim. Here's simply what he's saying. No part of your body is fully your body, like I was saying. My finger is not Zach, okay? But that, it can't be that way with God. It can't be that some of God is not God. Does he have a finger that's only partially God? Is his foot over like in Russia and his other foot's over in America or something like that? No, it doesn't work that way. But notice the logical rigor. And now what he'll do is he'll give replies to the initial objections, okay? The initial objections. Reply to objection one. Whatever is from God imitates him as cause things imitate the first cause. Listen to this. But it is of the essence of a thing to be in some sort composite because at least its existence uh, differs from its essence as will be shown hereafter. What he's saying is for the person that says we're to reflect God and everything in creation is made up of parts so God must be made up of parts. He says you're missing the creator-creation distinction. God is pure existence. You just happen to exist. Those are different. And then reply to objection two. With us, composite things are better than simple things because the perfections of created goodness cannot be found in one simple thing, but in many things. But the perfection of divine goodness is found in one simple thing. When we think of things that are great, like an iPhone or a computer, we think the more complexity, the better, okay? He's saying it's not the case with God, okay? That's not the case. Stop reading creaturely human categories back onto God. That's what he's doing. So the reason I show you that is not so you understand everything I just said for the last you know, eight minutes or so. It's simply to say this. I wanted to give you an example of how he does theology throughout all his works, okay? Not all, but a lot of his works. He gives the other view he disagrees with. He gives church fathers. He refutes it. He gives his view, and then he refutes those views. He, he just does that page after page after page. So the whole summa is just you looking up a new category on whether or not God is evil, looking up a new count on whether or not angels exist. And he just does this with each one. So it's fascinating if you're a nerd. If not, who cares? We're Protestants, right? Semper reformanda. Uh, We'll get to Luther eventually and you can all cheer. Let me pray for us. Dear God, we thank you for uh, preserving your church. We thank you for the time that we've gotten to, to dive into something that can be a bit heady. And so I pray that we wouldn't miss the forest for the trees, though. I pray that we wouldn't just get overly concerned with some of these fine philosophical distinctions. There's a time for that. But I just pray they wouldn't get in the way of worship, that those two go together. The more we know you rightly, the more we should love you. And so we thank you for figures like Aquinas, who uh, I think is a brother, I think is a believer. I'm not sure. He held some sketchy stuff on on justification. So I, I think so, though. But we thank you for whether he's a believer or not. We thank you for the good things that we're able to take from his work that because all truth is your truth, whether it's said by somebody who knows you or not, and in this case, again, I think he knows you, that we can use it either way. 
because all truth belongs to you. We love you and thank you in Christ's name, amen.